the New England Take on WKXL. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. As always, check out nhtalkradio.com to get the back episodes of the show, links to all the podcast versions of the show, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, New England Take, where we're posting all the shows on demand as well as video versions of all the episodes. Today, I am joined by Brian Coombs. He's from Rocking Horse Studio located in Pittsfield, New Hampshire. Uh, they have a new album that's going to be coming out made by their house band, which we'll be discussing today. Also excited to learn a bit about what Rocking Horse Studio is up to because I'm always hearing about all the local musicians running through up there, uh, working with the New Hampshire Music Collective and such. And uh, Dusty Gray, who I've known for many years, has definitely been through up there for many projects. And it, it's great to finally talk to you, Brian. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, AJ. Yeah, definitely. So if anyone isn't familiar with Rocking Horse, how would you describe your uh, studio slash company? Well, I would say that Rocking Horse Studio is one of the last large format recording studios here in New England. Um, You know, back in the day before digital proliferation, recording studios were big and they had big recording consoles and big spaces to record live bands. Um, But with digitation and kind of, you know, the the technology advancing, a lot of people, um, you know, were kind of told in the early days that, uh, well, you don't, you don't need to go to a studio anymore. You can just record in your bedroom or your basement. And I think, you know, uh, we do do a lot of recording that might start in a bedroom or a basement, but, you know, as the gentleman who designed Rocking Horse Studio years ago said to me, until they repeal the laws of physics, there's only so much that you would be able to do in a bedroom or a basement. So basically, uh, that's always a good starting spot. And, you know, we have done a lot of projects that begin at home and we import those files into our system. Uh, but when you're ready to make a real album and you want it to sound like something that compete on the radio, that's when artists usually find their way to us. Yeah, people drastically underestimate what it takes to get a proper recording, especially when you're considering like like the prime example to me is drums. Like, like you're going to need two to 24 microphones, depending on the size of the kit and what the drummer's going to be doing for an individual track. It needs to be a quiet space where there's not going to be echo coming off of off of uh, walls that will definitely mess up your recording. It, you need to be able to separate out all the microphones and the drums in an exact way, which can take a lot of space. It, like you, It's not just a matter of throwing, oh, I'm just going to throw this, this one microphone over above the drummer's head and call it good. And it's like, no, it's not the 1930s. We do a little more than that nowadays. Yeah, no, that's right. And drums are kind of the determining factor. You know, I always tell people, uh, give me a, a a good voice and a good drummer, and we will get you a good record, right? So when I started speaking with Michael Blackburn, is the gentleman who designed Rocking Horse Studio, and when I first started talking to him, I had mentioned that we wanted the best sounding tracking room in New England, and that's why our studio has twenty eight foot ceilings at the peak. Uh, Because, you know, you mentioned drums, a lot of the sound from a drum kit happens over the drummer's head, right? And if you're in a bedroom or a basement, if you only have eight foot ceilings and you're putting a drum, you know, microphone 
and you hit a, hit a drum, that sound is going to go up. It's going to go into the microphone. It's going to hit the ceiling and come back and hit the microphone again. And that causes all kinds of phase issues and can really cloud up and muddy the sound. So that's what Michael Blackmer meant by until they repeal the laws of physics. That's exactly what he was talking about. And it is, it's, it's drums, it's string sections and horns and piano and basically acoustic instruments, right? Now, if somebody wants to do some drum machine programming or sequencing and record synthesizers and record basses and even some guitars, knock yourself out, do that at home uh, because you, you have to start somewhere. And most of those people that we work with start with demos and their home demos. And I'm all for not recreating the wheel. If something sounds good that was recorded at home, we're not going to say, oh, well, I'm not going to use that. Come in and re-record it when you get here. No, if we can use it, we're going to use it and we're going to spend our time doing the things that people can't do at home. Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing, especially nowadays where the home studio musicians can bring something to a big studio. I use an electric guitar right behind me and like you can nowadays like just record just direct line right out of the guitar, put it into whatever you're recording and then send that off to a studio, which in turn saves saves the musician a ton of money because they're not spending that time and the time in the studio can be sent like processing the guitar in different ways that maybe is impossible like having huge like i went to a recording studio to film a music video for uh, uh, a musician a few years back and he was doing some tracking it, it was it was so loud it was so unbelievably loud and, and i'm like okay right. you can't do this at home yeah that's right and uh singers too i mean it's what would you say the value is of recording in studio if you're a singer because the big thing that comes to mind for me is you can probably do a lot to kind of make a, a quiet space for for them to 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 say to give their performance in a quiet space but the microphone has to be a huge aspect that you're able to bring to the table yeah i mean there are a couple of things there is the equipment side and you know, when we first opened, everything was about the equipment. We have the best this and we have the best that and we have the best that. But, you know, that was 17 years ago. And OK, we still have world class microphones and they do sound different. But I think really what it is, is finding an environment that makes a singer comfortable. And we have two spaces. We've got a smaller isolation room that is pretty dry um, and then we've got our large tracking room. And I prefer for most projects to, to have people sing in the large tracking room because it has a nice natural ambience to it. Uh, but I think the biggest thing as far as comfort um, is with a singer, if they're recording at home, it's a left brain, right brain thing, right? They're not only are they the singer, they're also the recording engineer. And I know for a fact myself I am terrible at recording myself, right? As soon as I try, I'm, I'm great at recording and I can even do okay with tracking, but put those thing, two things together and I'm terrible. I just, I can't focus on one or the other, right? So whenever I'm tracking something, Josh Kimball, who works with me here at the studio, is always here to track what I need to track when it's going on a record. If I'm doing a demo or if I'm cutting an idea for somebody that's fine. But if I know it's a keeper, I would obsess too much about the sound uh, to worry about my performance 
or I'm worried too much about my performance to worry about the sound. So I think that's, you know, again, most people who are recording at home, they're doing everything. And my hat's off to them if they're able to successfully do that, because that's something I'm not good at. I can't do the, I can't split the right brain, left brain, right brain. Well, it's like with, with me, like I've, I'm obviously recording in my home studio setup. It's like I set it up and then I don't touch it. I do tons of testing and then I have to know if I'm going to be coming to record just even voice doing stuff like this, doing the morning news here on WKXL and such. It's like I, it needs to work ahead of time because if I'm walking in and things go wrong, like it, 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 you're, you're 100% right on that. It's, you can't be troubleshooting and being talented at the same time. Well, you know, it's what's interesting, and, and you can probably get away with this. Um, Daniel Lenoir, who's one of my favorite producer influences, you know, he's done Bob Dylan and Peter Gabriel and U2. He has, in his setup, he has stations that are set up permanently, right? So he's got the keyboard station that's always plugged in, and it goes to the same channels on the board, into the same channels on Pro Tools. He's got his vocal mic that's set up just for him. It never gets touched. Now, we can do that in some spots, but we work with such a variety of different artists on such a variety of different projects that eventually we can't leave, like we'll try to leave microphones set up on the piano so that we know we can always go to the piano until we need to move the piano or until we decide that the mics that we're leaving on the piano are the perfect microphones for that acoustic guitar, or that's the perfect mic for the singer. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, if, 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 if you have a project studio that's just for you, and you can leave everything set up. I would love that. And you know, I'm you ain't that lucky. <laughs> I, I'm not that lucky, and I'm envious of you and Daniel Lenoir that you can do that. Uh, we're eventually going to be talking about the uh, your your house band's upcoming album. I, I promise. It's just super interesting to me. I hope it's okay. But uh, no, that's okay. This is this this is my day job. You know, um, anything that we do on the Rocking Horse Music Club side, that's my passion. This is my job, which I'm also very lucky. This is my passion. So I'm okay as much as you want to talk about Rocking Horse Studio. So what about the musicians that go through? Uh, what are some, some highlight musicians and what you thought was interesting working with them? And um, like what sort, of, what sort of things do you do for musicians when they go in that maybe either uh, people aren't involved in the industry or musicians that are kind of new to the industry may not think of? Yeah, well, you know, when we first started, uh, and that was, you know, 17 years ago, uh, we were very much a studio for hire. And we were working with a lot of a lot of bands back then. And it was the band would come in, they would set up, we would record them. Um, but then somewhere along the line, it shifted to people wanted to work with me and Josh and me as producers, right? So it became, we became more involved in the song selection and the, even the construct, not saying writing the songs, but critiquing the songs and saying, hey, well, you know, what if you went to, let's do a double chorus at the end. Or, um, you know, I tend to really enjoy the arrangements of things. Hey, did you ever think about having a string quartet on this song? 
or a didgeridoo on this song, right? And, uh, you know, when we made the first Pat and the Hats album with Pat Gochez and the guys, uh, Pat and I come from a very similar musical background, which was great, but sometimes we were egging each other on like, hey, let's put a harpsichord part down. No, let's put two harpsichord parts down, right? So you can only have too many music nerds in the room at the same time before things get out of hand. Yeah, that's right. And we really could have on that record, we could have used one of us to say, "Eh, no, we've we've got enough. Right. I often say, you know, sometimes my favorite records that I've produced are the ones where I just stay out of the way. And I like, hey, you can always add. Right. We could always put something on that would be cool. But is it distracting from the original idea? And, you know, it's interesting. I mentioned the hats. We were doing that hats record at the same time we were doing a record for Tristan Ullman. And Tristan is one of my all-time favorite New England He's amazing. artists. Right? And it's funny that Tristan and I had talked for years about, let's do a record. Let's do a record. And Tristan was such a minimalist, right? As opposed to... Pat and I, we were, you know, do right. We were recording the second coming of Sergeant Pepper with as many overdubs as we could get in. Right. So it was, it was funny that I had said to Tristan, I said, well, you know, Tristan, I'm assuming this isn't going to be the last record you make. So you're making this record with us and the team here at Rocking Horse. So maybe we can pick a spot or two where we can enhance the, arrangement but i had to tippy toe around it right and the idea of getting you know myron kibbe to play a little slide guitar on a song or lord forbid tristan letting me do some sort of ambient synth thing on a song right and he would i could see him getting nervous at spots like oh brian i don't i think we're overdoing it and i would say no tristan let me play you this hat song that's us overdoing it. <laughs> there I, is a line. I am aware of where that line is. Right? Here's an example of what I'm not going to do, I promise. Yeah, right. But you're right. So every artist has their own threshold, right? Um, so for Tristan, getting Jordan Terrell Waisaki in to play a fiddle and Myron Kibbe to play a, you know, a, a slide guitar and me, he did let me do a couple of synth things. And again, I said, you know, the next record, do something else, right? And I kind of, I compared myself to Daniel Lenoir. I said, look, when Dylan worked with Daniel Lenoir, he let Lenoir do certain things, right? So what I really appreciated with Tristan was after we finished that record, um, he came back to me three months later and wanted to do another one. So I hadn't scared him away completely, but on that next one, we did exactly the opposite. On the, the first record we did with Tristan, we recorded him live in our room without any dampening, any, you know, I set up a couple of room mics and the only reverb that you hear on his voice is the sound of him in the room. And for a bunch of those songs, we actually used one vintage Neumann M49, one mic that was picking up both his guitar and his voice. And that was it. Um, So the second record, Tristan came in and said, can we do the exact opposite? So I built him a fort of packing blankets. So it was, his sound was really, really dead. 
And then we used a very cheap Furman spring reverb as the reverb. So it was the exact opposite of natural and ambient. We went small and then fake reverb, but no additional instrumentation. So, you know, Tristan, you know, I love working with Tristan and those, those two records that we did are two of my favorite records that we've done here at the studio. Yeah, we have about three minutes left in this segment, so we'll finish up talking a little bit about Rocking Horse. In the second segment, we'll be talking about the Rocking Horse Music Club, which has an album coming out here in the coming uh, month here in September. Uh, so what genres do you tend to work with, and do you have a preference for which ones you really enjoy working with the most? Uh, well, we tend to work with, what would you call it, indie indie pop, indie rock? Yeah, probably, right, uh, put her there. Yeah, yeah, we do, we do a lot of that, and we do a lot of kind of um, atmospheric, um, cinematic, uh, Lana Del Rey-ish type of pop stuff, and we do a lot of folk indie stuff. Um, we do work with a lot of singer songwriters who come in and work with us because we've got our house band of musicians that have been playing together for so long. Um, right, right now, you know, I spent the day actually writing string arrangements for a Christmas record. Oh, wow. Cool. Oh, so it's a, it's a Christian, you know, it's a religious Christian record, fantastic songs, uh, Heidi North is the artist's name, and she writes these brilliant progressions. So writing string parts for it has been a lot of fun. That's so cool. And you you always have a Christmas show that you do too, right? Yeah, we were doing the Christmas show every year for about five or six years. And then one year we ended up uh, being in, this was in 2018, we ended up being in England in the autumn. Um, and then in 2019, we were in England for shows in the autumn. So because of that, because we were there in October and November of those years, we weren't able to get the band rehearsed to do Christmas shows. So we haven't done a Christmas show since 2017. Uh, I'd like to get back into that because that was something that really connected us with the community. And we always, uh, you know, donated any proceeds that we got to a local charity and it was something that was near and dear to my heart. Um, but then, like I say, we did shows in England in 1819, and then COVID was an issue. Uh, but I'd love to talk to the Capitol Center about, uh, you know, bringing that back. Brian Coombs, Rocking Horse Studio. Uh, where can people learn more about the uh, studio? Uh, pretty easy, rockinghorsestudio.com. You guys actually have an album coming out with, called The Rocking Horse Music Club is the group, it's your house band, and uh, how, how did it end up coming together where you actually put down, uh, put down some tracks that's just your house band doing stuff together? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, Eric Wagley is our house drummer, and Myron Kibbe is our house guitar player, and I've been working with those guys for about 15 years now. And we've worked on so many different projects from so many different artists that we've developed some chemistry, right? And then the, our house group kind of grew with sessions that would come in, right? Patrick Gochez came in with Pat and the Hats, and we really hit it off musically. And then Justin Cohn, who's a, you know, kind of indie folk singer, songwriter from New Hampshire, uh, he came in and his songs and his voice blew us away. 
Um, but, you know, I mean, prior to opening Rocking Horse Studio, I was a performing musician and a singer, or not really a singer, but a, a songwriter musician. And, but, you know, for 10 years, the first 10 years of Rocking Horse Studio, I, I had to focus on doing what we were doing as a business. So once we were established with that, I started getting some ideas for songs. And the first song uh, that we wrote, uh, Rick Broussard from uh, New Hampshire Magazine, he, he and his team were filming an independent film that I'll have to ask Rick, because I don't know if that film is ever going to see the light of day. It was called Granted Orpheus. And Rick Broussard asked, Pat Gochez and I to write a song for that. So we did that and we enjoyed that. And then uh, Pat and I got asked to write another song about a different project. Um, again, that's something that never really took off, but we were asked to write a song that had the title home in its, you know, in the title, the word home. So we wrote a song called uh, everywhere is home. It was a gospel song. Um, and, Pat and I had never really written gospel, but it just kind of felt like a gospel thing. Um, and then, you know, so the original demo of that had Pat sounding like Paul McCartney trying to sound gospel, which <laughs> in and of itself is pretty darn cool, right? But Pat and I both thought, when we thought, well, who could we get to sing this? We both immediately thought of Justin. So we asked Justin to sing it, and Justin knocked it out of the park. And then uh, a friend of mine in England suggested, I, I, was, I was talking to my, a friend in England about getting a gospel choir to sing on it. And the original intention was to go down south, go to, go, go to get a Baptist choir somewhere. And he suggested that we work with a choir in London. And he, he thought, um, not only did he know a choir that was really good, he thought if we got this choir in London, that that would open up the possibility of getting some airplay in England. Um, so we got the Sing Gospel Choir uh, from London, and they sang on the track. And uh, the next thing we knew, um, Radio 2 was playing the track. And my friend who got it to Radio 2 kind of said to me, well, before they start spinning it, you have to come up with a band name. So we spent one feverish couple of days trying to figure out Ooh, what are we going to call ourselves? And we just figured, well, it's born here at Rocking Horse Studio, and it features all of the, you know, the team of Rocking Horse Studio. So hence, Rocking Horse Music Club was born. Um, but even then, it was, it, wasn't, it was kind of a fluid thing, right? Pat was really busy with the hats, and Justin was doing a lot of stuff on his own, and we were busy at the studio. So it was kind of a when we're available, what we used to call a busman's holiday, right? Um, we do music for a day job, but we're going to go do music for vacation. Um, and, you know, the success that we had with radio in 2018 in Britain led us to do it that a tour in Britain in 2018. We actually performed for the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in 2018, which uh, was pretty cool. That was a pretty cool experience. And then, uh, you know, that just led us to doing the next project in 2019, which was a tribute to Genesis guitar, original Genesis guitarist, Anthony Phillips, who isn't a household, certainly not a household name here, 
really isn't a household name in England, but he was one of my earliest musical influences. Um, so it was a true labor of love. So we did that in 2019. Uh, we got some famous people to play on that record. Steve Hackett, who replaced Ant Phillips in Genesis, played on that record. And the sax player from Supertramp played on that record. And a singer named Noel McCalla, who I really had enjoyed. He was the singer on Mike Rutherford from Genesis's first solo record, which was, again, a big influence on me. So Noel ended up singing on the record. Um, Aunt Phillips showed up at the show. He's, he and I have become friends over the years. Um, so those were good. Those were really good shows. That was in 2019. And the intention it was to go back in 2020. And then we all know what happened in 2020. Slowed you down a little bit on that end of things. It yeah. did, which obviously gave us time to write a new record. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the record, I mean, if you had to describe what it's the feel or the genre, how would you put it? Well, I think I, I, I think I probably mentioned to you that it's we li I like to call it a genre de genre defying record. But if you had to put it in a camp, I think it definitely falls into a progressive rock camp. So if you're fans of Genesis or Pink Floyd or Rush, who, those were probably my three biggest influences anyway. There's a huge dose of that. But because Pat and Justin and, you know, the three of us in various combinations wrote, you know, all 22 of the songs, we have diverse appreciation. So there are there are Beatles like moments. There are, you know, Beatles and zombies and Beach Boys moments. There are glam rock, Bowie, Roxy music vibes. Uh, and then there's a song um, that we got. You had mentioned Dusty Gray in the first segment. Dusty is somebody that Pat and I have so much respect for as a writer. And I wanted to get as many of my friends on this record as possible. So I asked Dusty if he was interested in coming over and writing a tune with us. And um, so, yeah, I, I, gave him, I gave him the brief. Hey, here's, you know, because this was kind of a musical that we were doing, um, there was certain songs that needed to be done. So I said, Dusty, I said, I want to write a song from the point of view of the oldest man alive. And what would the oldest man alive, what would he say? He's in this circus, right? It was kind of, you know, inspired by P.T. Barnum, how he would have the oldest, you know, he would have the, the fattest man, the tallest man, but he never had an oldest man. So I thought that would be an interesting, interesting thing. Like, what would the oldest man alive say? And Dusty was about a year into having a, having a new child. So I'm sure he felt that way already. <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. So so Dusty really did his homework and he showed up for our songwriting session. And we did that in our, our second control room, which is directly above us, uh, which is where Josh Kimball is working right now. Um, and he had done his homework. He came in with a title um, called Cut from a Different Cloth, which I was a little, a little unsure about um, because it was such a, is a common phrase until it dawned on me. And Dusty had obviously already thought of this the character that he was that we were voicing was actually made of cloth you know i don't think we've really talked about you know the actual what the record is it's about a circus of miniature dolls and in the creator of this circus's mind these dolls come to life and they all tell their own their own tales so dusty came in with cut from a different cloth 
because the character was actually made of cloth. And then Dusty came up with this great line that, again, made of cloth or not, it's a great line. Back then, we were made not to fray. And that line was so good. And that was, you know, Dusty brought his genius that day. And Pat and Dusty and I traded lines. We trained, you know, traded melody lines, chords. And by the end of the day, we had a song that we really liked, but it was sounding very Dusty Gray. And it wasn't really fitting in with the record. Um, so right towards the end of production, we decided, you know, Josh Kimball and I sat down and we looked at demos of songs that might not make the record. And I had said, boy, you know, the Dusty song is so good. What can we do to make it fit? And Pat volunteered. He jumped in and said, right, let me take it home. Let me see if I can demo it to make it fit more with the sound of the record. And he came back with a beautiful arrangement. And that's pretty much what you hear on the record now. That's amazing. And we'll actually go out on this segment uh, playing that track, too. So it's a great story how that came together. Um, what's, it, what's it like pulling together all these musicians from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, especially Dusty's very much a country musician through and through. He's written for top 40 uh, country musicians in, in the past when he was down in Nashville and such. Uh, is, it, is it a labor of love? Is it just an easy thing to, to go like, this is amazing putting all these pieces together? Like, how do you make it all work together? It's pretty amazing. Um, you know, there were a couple of times in the course of the record where um, I felt like I was becoming too incellular, right? And I have a particular writing style. So, you know, and when I was writing on piano and Pat was writing on piano, the, the balance was starting to get too piano heavy, right? So I said to Pat, because I don't play guitar. So I said to Pat, I said, you know, what have you got? on guitar. And I called Myron Kibbe, our session guitarist, and said, Myron, what do you got on guitar? So Myron, who's not typically a songwriter, ended up coming up with, um, you know, one of the, the music for one of the songs that is in, in a style that I absolutely wouldn't write in, right? And then what was cool was because this record does bounce around to a lot of different genres, uh, I was open for things not sounding like me. I didn't want everything to sound like me, right? So Pat's influences and just certainly Justin doesn't, he doesn't come from a progressive rock background. So everything that Justin brought in was much more acoustic and much more contemporary and modern. And then some of the session musicians, right, or the guest musicians, we had Greg Hawks from the Cars come in. And rather than having Greg play keyboards, which is what he's known for, I had him play alto sax on a song. And I had him play on a song that was kind of modeled on a Roxy Music, early Roxy Music vibe. And I knew that Roxy Music were an early influence on the Cars, so after Greg got done playing the sax part, he came in here into the control room and he said, is that Roxy enough for you, Brian? That's amazing. So we are on this record. We are most definitely wearing the influences on our sleeves. 
You mentioned in, in your email to me about this uh, Abbey Road and going there to, to record some of the tracks. What sort of influence did they have on um, the way those tracks specifically went? Yeah, so our primary mission at Abbey Road was for Pat and I to use the famous, there are two pianos there that are very famous for having been on Beatles records. There's the Challen piano, both uprights, the Challen piano, which was used on Fool on the Hill and Lady Madonna, and the Mrs. Mills piano, which was used on Penny Lane with a little help from my friends. So, um, you know, it was interesting. Pat was going to play some piano. I was going to play some piano. What I, I rehearsed my butt off because I didn't want, I, I was unsure of what, how we were going to feel when we got there. And I was worried about cracking under the pressure. So I rehearsed like I had never rehearsed before in my life because I wanted to enjoy it and I didn't want to get upset. And a friend of mine, Dave, a guy named Dave Maddox, who's a pretty, you know, pretty, pretty established session musician um, who had played with Paul McCartney and George Harrison. And so he'd been to Abbey Road and he said, Brian, he says, you're not going to have any problem because the vibe there is so cool that you're going to play above your ability. And he was completely right. He said, you know, I, you know, we got there and once you're over the initial shock of, wow, this is studio two. This is where all those Beatles records were made. Once it got down to actually sitting down and playing something or singing something, it was no different than doing it here. And the same stuff happens there. Microphones break down and suddenly there are strange noises coming from the pianos and they deal with it the same way we deal with it here. They swap out a mic or they troubleshoot. So that was, that was good for Josh and I to see that, you know, even at a hallowed place like Abbey road, things still equipment is still equipment. And when you're dealing with equipment with tubes in it, things can go wrong. Right. Break eventually. Yeah. So, you know, so we did a bunch of Pat, Pat is working on a new record now. Um, so we recorded a lot of his songs uh, using the pianos. We did a lot of stuff for this record now on the pianos. And we also got some of our special guests, our English special guests, all joined us at Abbey Road. And, you know, I'll tell you, AJ, if you ever want to get somebody to play on your record, invite them to do it at Abbey Road. They'll say no yes. <laughs> nobody says no to that, right? All right, Brian so, Coombs of Rocking Horse Studio, we're, we're out of time on this segment because I want to be sure to have enough time for us to play a track. And the uh, final short segment on the show, we're, we're just going to be going straight to, to a second track from uh, the Rocking Horse Music Club's upcoming album in September. Where can people check it out when it comes out? Uh, when it comes out, best place would be rockinghorsemusicclub.com. Have Amazing. all the links. Thank you so much for joining me, Brian. This has been a fun conversation and what you're doing up there at Rocking Horse Studio. Thanks, AJ. Thanks for having me. All right, here we go with Cut from a Different Cloth. Friend of the show, Dusty Gray, uh, co-wrote this song, and I'm excited to hear it. This is the New England Take on WKXL. Walk that line 
I've seen this old place And that face on the flyer It was mine And now here we are And boy you've got it made Hard work was a given Cut from a different cloth And you'll never know When the lights come up And the crowds go home It doesn't mean it's the end of the show Cut from a different cloth I'm cut from a different cloth from 